During the month of November, we will be finishing our series on major messages from the minor prophets. We're going to spend a short time in Amos and then just one Sunday in Obadiah. In between then, we are going to have a special uh, Thanksgiving message. Um, And then uh, in the month of December, we're going to do a Christmas series. Uh, There are three Sundays before uh, Christmas, and so we're going to do a three-part Christmas series. I don't know if how many of you remember, but years ago I kind of did an interesting twist and did a Christmas series out of the book of Ruth. Um, and uh, But uh, it's not going to be Ruth again. It'll be a surprise, even to me, because I haven't started working on it yet. <laughs> but we'll do that. And then starting the first of the year, I'm open for suggestions in terms of a New Testament focus or book that you'd like to do. Uh, James has been suggested to me, but I I did James when I first came here. Uh, I don't know if you're ready for a refresher course on James again, but that's been suggested. But uh, so. Uh, Jot down on a card, call me, let me know what you might be interested in terms of where we head the first of the year. That is how far ahead I plan. Kay already has, other than the what the three Christmas sermons are going to be, Kay has everything all through the end of the year already in her hands. So uh, that's where we're headed. Someone has said, that the book of Joel's importance, the reason why it was one of those specifically chosen, uh, one of those that has been acknowledged as a part of the Old Testament Scriptures, the canon, uh, right from the beginning, has to do with the fact that it is the first to develop what is an oft-mentioned biblical idea. And that is the day of the Lord. Now we define the day of the Lord as a day in which there is a decisive action by God to bring His plans to completion. And we noted last Sunday that the day of the Lord is actually a reference not to a single day, but only to the idea of a period of time in which there would be judgment and restoration. But it always consists of three basic features. One, the judgment of God's people. Two, the judgment of foreign nations. And three, the purification and restoration of God's people through intense suffering. And each of these three elements is found in the book of Joel. Uh, It offers one of the most complete pictures in the Scripture of what is presented as what is going to be ultimately a redemptive event. So what is the setting of Joel? Why is all of this important? And I think that In in just a couple words, I can say that the setting of Joel is one of judgment and a call to repentance. Now I shared two weeks ago that we know very little at all, uh, if anything, about Joel other than what is written in this book. 
Now the name Joel means Jehovah is God. Yo for Jehovah, El for Elohim, Jehovah is God. And what we know in the book is that Joel lived in a time of two tremendous, very devastating natural disasters. A plague of locusts that destroyed the land. Joel chapter 1 verse 4 and chapter 2 verse 25. And also a severe drought. Chapter 22 verses 22 and 23. And Joel believed that these were in fact acts of God. Now, I shared with you, I am very leery of looking at a natural disaster and saying, that's an act of God. And the reason being is, is that God created this world, He set things in motion, and we have in many ways done everything we can to destroy the world. Don't tell me that the pollution and all that has taken place hasn't affected and affected creation as well as it does us. Uh, Most of the people now know that I won't drink a hot drink out of a cup that's made out of styrofoam. Styrofoam is a waste product of petroleum. And you can take clear boiling water and put it in styrofoam 15 times. And the 16th time that you do it, you hold it up and look at it, and there's an oily film on top of the water. What does all that stuff going into our systems, what does all of that stuff going into our creation do? In many ways, we are bringing judgment upon ourselves. And we need to recognize that. And we need to confess of that and repent of that and do all that we can. My wife and my daughter are working hard on getting me to be a recycler. We have a bin. They're good about taking the bin down and putting it in the recycling bins. But it is so easy for me to to drink out of that plastic bottle and pitch it and not even think about it and the long-term effects of it. Joel believed that these two disasters were acts of God. And he used them as a sign of the coming great judgment day of the Almighty Lord. He lived around 825 B.C. at the time when Joash, at the age of only seven, was placed on the throne. And Jehoiada the high priest was actually the the ruler and the leader of the people. Probably the best known of all of Joel's prophecies is from the second chapter of his book, The Coming of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God upon the earth, upon all flesh. In fact, it was quoted, Joel was quoted, the entire... Hebrew third chapter of Joel was quoted by Simon Peter on Pentecost. And Simon Peter's take was, this is what you're seeing in front of you today. The Holy Spirit being poured out, our men and our women prophesying, our young men and our young women also. But probably second 
to that passage about Pentecost would be Joel's description of the great judgment day of the Almighty God, which is what we're looking at today. And the task that Joel sets before us, which comes with his call to repent, is to make a decision. And that's an awesome task. It's a a task that colors all of life. Decision making is a task that changes destiny. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that sometimes a single decision has the potential of remaking the whole creation of God? What about the decision made to drop two nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Didn't that change the whole world in which we live? A decision? Now I'm not making judgments. I'm just pointing out the importance of decision making. And we are all summoned. We are all summoned by means of Joel's prophecy to join the people of God in what Joel refers to as the valley of decision. We can't escape it. The fact that we're alive, breathing with heartbeats, that we have minds capable of thinking, all of that places us in a world of inevitable and inexorable choice. We live in a world of decision making. And our lives, my life and your life, are made on the basis of the decisions that we make. Let me give you an example from my own life. Years ago, I made the decision to stay at Lincoln Christian University, then Lincoln Christian College. I was thinking about leaving and going back to what was my original intention. I left high school going to Wabash College pre-med. Every semester... My first semester, the end of my first year, the end of the first semester of my second year, all three of those I had decided I'm not going back. I'm going to go on and go to prepare and go on to pre-med school. But I made a decision not to do that. Later in life, I made a decision again uh, not to try to pursue going back and going to medical school. Now, At the age of 67, those choices that I made back then pretty much have determined the fact that I probably would not get into medical school now even if I wanted to. The chances would be slim to real close to none. A decision made in the past limits the opportunities I have in the present and in the future. Theodore Roosevelt. He once said, you know, any moment of decision, the best thing that you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. Now think about that. 
Didn't Jesus say to one of the churches in Revelation, I wish that you were either hot or cold. But because you are lukewarm, because you're trying to sit on the fence, I spew you out of my mouth. Our message today, I've entitled the final chapter. And the text is actually the whole third chapter of Joel. And so, I just have a section of that though that I want to read with you. And what I've chosen is my printed text starts with verse 12 through 16. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. I want to remind you once again of the importance of how we approach God's Word. And I hope I'm not just pushing this too much on you, but it's so important. This week again, I was dealing with a young person who was trying to take a verse and just take it totally out of the context and say, well, here's what the Bible says. We need to look and make sure we understand what the Bible says in the first place. I used, over a month ago now for you, the illustration, and Cindy hit on it when she shared with you, that when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, most people read that in the plural. The fruit of the Spirit is A, B, C, D, E. But that's not what the text says. The text says the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. Now, how do I understand that word fruit being singular with a list of things? And I shared with you the way I understand that is that I say the fruit of the Spirit is love. And how do we know what love is? We know it by seeing joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, all of those things. We have to make sure we understand what the text says. So if you're reading a passage sometime and it just doesn't make sense to you, by all means, come and we'll get the Hebrew out, we'll get the Greek out, and we'll find out exactly what it said in the original languages and try to figure out what is the best English word. 
for that sentence, for that thought. But then we have to understand what it's saying in its context. And we have to understand how that text was understood at the time it was first read and heard. Only then... See, that's what, that's what Simon Peter did on Pentecost. He took that passage from Joel chapter 2 and he says, here's the passage, here's what it says, here's how people have understood it, but let me apply it to what you're seeing today going on. The present context. And then we make application. Now, when we do that, we, we understand that Joel has already issued a call to return. Last week we saw it in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, even now, as bad as things have gotten, what did Moses say to the people? Joshua say to the people? If my people who are called by not my name will do what? Humble themselves and pray and look to heaven. Even now. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't make it a thing of show. Make it something that is real, eternal. And so as chapter 3 begins... That call to return is placed within the parameters of judgment. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3. For behold, in those days, plural, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Because, because, important word, because they have scattered them among the nations, have divided up the land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What's going on? Well, Joel is saying that in those days, what days? Well, go back to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. And when that happened, at that time, He decided that He was going to restore the fortunes. Restore the fortunes. In other words, He was going to take those things and make them better than ever before. And His goal was just that. Restoration. And basically what we have in chapters 4-8 to is a, is a further explanation of those first three verses. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you, pay, if, if you are paying me back, I'll return your payment on your head. And you know what? He did. 
He did. 346 B.C. Artaxerxes captured Sidon. And they were sent into slavery just as Sidon had sent the people of Israel into Sidon into slavery. In 332 B.C., Alexander the Great attacked Tyre and 6,000 people were slaughtered on the beach when that attack took place. Another 2,000 were crucified and 30,000 were sold into slavery. God acting on behalf of His people. So what was the problem? The problem then, and might I say, the problem today, is sin. And what is sin? I'm not going to give you a list. I don't have to. Because there's no list that answers it all. Paul says if there's something that you know you should be doing and you're not doing it, that's a sin. That's pretty broad. But I like to look at it in just this little way. What is right there at the center of the word sin? I. I. The unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. I want something. I think things should be this way. And I push what I want and what I need. And I do it to the disregard of others around me. Sin. I take that which is not mine. Sin. I speak in a negative way, judging, putting them down to lift me up. Sin. And what was going on here, Joel says, is here's here's what happened. These people came in and they divided the people of Israel, sent them all kinds of different directions. They divided up the land. And thirdly, they enslaved the people. Now those were the three specifics of that time. Our specifics are different. What is sin? You know, we have had a problem for decades of trying to minimize sin. Well, that's not a sin. He, he, he just has a disease. A syndrome. 1973, while I was in college at Lincoln, Dr. Carl Menninger of the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, published a book called Whatever Became of Sin. A medical doctor, not a theologian, a medical doctor, psychiatrist. Whatever became of sin. Dr. Menninger was invited to Lincoln's campus and I got to spend several hours with him. And then... I also did three hours of independent study under Bruce Parmenter and and Tom Edwald on Menninger's whole system of thinking and therapy. Carl Menninger lamented the loss of awareness in American society of human wrongdoing. 
Now what he had in mind was behavior that violates the moral code or the individual conscience or both. In fact, he insisted that it's behavior that pains or harms or disturbs my neighbor or me and myself. All of that is sin. And yet we have had a tendency in our society to subsume sin under such topics as disease and crime and delinquency and deviancy. Here's what he wrote in his book. I hope to show that there is usefulness in retaining the concept and even the word sin. And he called on people that if they wanted to get healthy, the best thing they could do is engage in significant and meaningful change of life. Repentance. Doing things that would acknowledge their wrongdoing instead of uh, leaving it as, well, I made a mistake. No. You sinned. When you treated that person wrongly, you sinned. And and that's hard for us to do. We want to defend ourselves in so many different ways. And what Menninger said was that all that happens is, is it slides us in to very, I love this phrase, very edgy depression. We're always on edge. Now, sin. There is sin. And we've got to acknowledge that, but our society doesn't want to. And then the second thing that falls right in that same line is that we need to understand that we are those people. During the trial of the Nazi criminals, one of the Jewish men who was there witnessing the trials had to get up and leave with tears running down his face. Not because of what he was hearing with regard to what the man on the stand had done. He had to get up and leave because in his words he said, I began to realize that that evil starts right at the center of me and reaches out. My hatred, my anger, leads to those things if I don't repent and change. We are those people. Now, there's three valleys in this passage. Read the third chapter. There's the valley of Jehoshaphat. And if you go to maps, you're not going to find it. I tried. I didn't trust what couple commentaries said. I I looked for myself. I found as many Old Testament uh, maps as I could. There is no valley of Jehoshaphat. The word Jehoshaphat, it means the Lord judges. So maybe it was not to be a name but it was to be translated to say 
the valley where the Lord judges, which would in many ways be the same as the second valley mentioned, the valley of decision. You see, the problem is sin, and the problem solver is God. It's not me. When he starts talking about the valley of decision, it's not about my decisions. He says right there, I will sit to judge. Did you notice that? Proclaim among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all of the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning pruning hooks into spears. Say, wait a minute, Pastor. That's not how I remember that. I thought it was supposed to be where the swords were changed into plowshares and the pruning hooks were changed into, into spears. Well, it is that if you go to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, and if you go to Micah chapter 4, verse 3. But in Joel, Joel turns it around and says, No, don't, don't get ready for peace. You get ready for war. You take those implements of agriculture and you change them into weapons to get ready for war. And there's kind of a little bit of sarcasm here when he says, Let the weak among you say, I'm a warrior. Because you're dealing now with God, not some other nation. God says, I, I will sit to judge. And where's He going to do it? He's going to do it in the valley of decision. Or as one translation has it, I don't know what you have in front of you if you have the ESV, it says decision. Others say the valley of the verdict. Because it's not a human decision here. The focus is on God's verdict on humans. Call all nations. Those who are outside of the family of God. And God's condemnation is on the throngs. Multitudes. Multitudes. In the valley of decision. An interesting play on words there, by the way. In the Hebrew, the word translated multitudes is a derivative of the word for noise. In other words, a mass noise. A tumult. Because what's about to happen? The final act of God. You see, you go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 29. You go to Revelation chapter 8, verse 12, or Revelation chapter 9, verse 2. You're going to find this same description. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw from their shining. It's a description of God's final act to complete His plan. You say, well, what do you mean God is a problem solver? Well, look at verse 17 again. So that you will know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountains, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains will drip sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah will flow with water. God's going to vindicate the true Israel. And I hope by now, after three and a half years, you understand that the true Israel 
is not the Jewish people in the Middle East. The true Israel is the church. We are. Go back and dig into Romans. If those remnant of the Jews become believers, they are grafted back into the tree. The church is now the tree. The true Israelites. And God's going to vindicate the church before the nations. And the Spirit is going to be a part of that bringing in the living waters. They'll flow with water. How about Jesus' words to help us understand that? It comes from John chapter 7. It's uh, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. And on the last day, it was a day when they would just have water in great big containers all around. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scriptures has said, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. That Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And each day during that feast of booze, water from the pool of Siloam. Remember that pool from another miracle? Water from the pool of Siloam was taken to and poured on the temple altar. And Jesus is basically echoing Isaiah and yet indicating that He is even the fulfillment of the Feast of the Weeks being poured out on the, wall, on the, on the altar. God's the problem solver. And what God did to solve that problem brings us on to a third valley. The book ends with a series of contrasts. And the solution is salvation. That's the third valley. The valley of Shittim in the ESV. Or the valley of the acacia trees. Joel's book ends with a full reversal of the judgments with which he began the book. What the locusts have eaten is now restored. New wine is dripping from the vines. The cattle are full and the rivers are flowing. And how does that happen? It happens because of the contrast that's there. There is a blessing of Israel, but there's also the curse on Egypt and Edom. They're going to become a desolation, a desolate wilderness. But Judah's going to be inhabited forever. What did Jesus say to Peter and the disciples? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, What's a gate for in most cases? Is a gate 
for keeping people in? Most of the time, no. Maybe at a hospital or a prison, the gate is there to keep people in. But for the most part, gates are there to keep people on the outside from getting in. Right? The gates of hell is a defensive image. The church is not supposed to be on the defense against hell. No, it's not the church's gates. It's the gates of hell that are are not going to prevail against the church. We're the army. We are supposed to be attacking the strongholds of Satan. We're the ones that should be crying out in desperation. Don't kill those unborn babies. We'll adopt them. We'll build orphanages. Whatever we have to do. Don't murder the unborn. We should be crying out against all of the injustice that's going on. About those who are having to live on the streets. Now some of them I know are there because of their own problems. There was a for lack of a better term, a homeless wino, you know what I'm talking about, who lived in the alley behind the place I worked in Louisville, Kentucky. I asked my boss about him one time because my boss was a good Christian man and he would go out there and leave plates of food out there for that man to eat. But I asked my boss about him one time. I said, is there any other way we can help him? He said, no. No. That man has a Ph.D. in engineering and doesn't want to help himself. We can't help him until he's ready to help himself. But we should be doing whatever we can in the meantime to alleviate. Uh, Man, I am so proud to be a part of Myanmar Hope Christian Missions because among other things, we're building wells. We're raising cattle and giving them to poor little uh, villages in Myanmar. We're doing things to help alleviate some of the problems, not just sharing the gospel message. And I love the way Joel ends. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. One of the consistent messages of the whole Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21 is that God's desire is to be with His people. But He's a gentleman. He's not going to force us. We have to answer that call of Joel to repent. We have to be the ones that change our lives. Listen to me. If I wronged you every day of the week, and every day of the week I said I'm sorry, would you forgive me? But I kept on wronging you every day of the week. Before long, my words of sorrow, my request for forgiveness, are going to be falling on hard ears, aren't they? 
And yet often that's what we do to God. God, forgive me, but I'm going to keep living the way I want to live. You see, the problem, scripturally speaking, is not God leaving us. It's us walking away from God. But He's there, dwelling in Zion. And all we have to do is repent, and He's there to accept us. Let's pray.